Would you bow your hearts in prayer with me? Father, we... This is our great need. We need you to abide with us. We have no hope of living righteously, of doing well, of finding wholeness. We have no hope of any of those things on our own. Our hope is that you, the God of heaven, creator of the universe, would for some reason want to be with us. And God, that's just one of the great mysteries for me, that you would want to be with me. And yet, Lord, that's the good news you give us. God, there's so many times we feel just beat up by our unworthiness, beat up by our brokenness, beat up by our failures and all the reminders of them. And yet you, the God of heaven, spare no cost in making us yours. Lord, we thank you for this great love. Pray that you would help us. As Paul says, that we would have the strength to comprehend it. Because we're not strong enough on our own. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, tomorrow or sometime this week, should you desire and act on the desire to go to Chick-fil-A for any of your meals or in-between meal needs, you will be treated with some of the highest hospitality our culture has to offer. You will be given delicious sandwiches, delicious chicken, and they will even, and I say this from personal experience, they will remove the pickles without judgment. (laughs) And not only that, but they will accompany your chicken and your fries with a sauce that either includes literal drops of heaven or high levels of nicotine. Either way, I'm hooked. I don't care which it is. I can't get enough of this stuff. It's just, it is liquid gold. And then, on on top of all that, anyone there wearing a name tag and a nice red shirt, when you... Thank them for hitting the refresh button on your sweet tea. We'll look at you with what feels like the greatest sincerity, and they will say, my pleasure. (laughs) And if you decide to go to Chick-fil-A this week, that will be your experience. Now, if you decide this week to go to Walmart... 
where it looks like a hoarder laid out the aisles, and they might come crashing down on you at any moment, and you know for certain that the store was cleaned right before it opened 12 years ago. <laughs> and you, your experience will be quite a bit different. I assure you that it will be no one's pleasure to help you at Walmart. And you will realize the powers of marketing and the deceptive capabilities of video production. Because you saw a commercial of Walmart, and it was of a Walmart that looked like it was run by Chick-fil-A. But your Walmart is run by Walmart. <laughs> and that's a problem. And if you are able to get out of that Walmart without a conversation with a single employee, you'll count it a success. It's terrifying. It's hard to have a positively good experience. It's like having to choose your own adventure book, but it's only bad options. At least that's my experience. Or you could buy a portable DVD player, get out to your car and find blood on the box. Literally happened. And oddly enough, not the worst part of that particular trip to Walmart. These two businesses offer completely different experiences and yet are consistent with their brand. Each experience can elicit a reaction, but what would you say to someone who went to Chick-fil-A and walked out as though they had had the Walmart experience? You might wonder if out of fear they refused to believe that a quick service restaurant could offer such friendliness and kindness and quality. You might wonder if they believed they weren't worthy of the sauce or the service. Or that they would be so consumed in whatever was happening in front of them or in their life outside of that restaurant, that enclave of heaven, that whatever was going on in their life provided a great distraction so that they missed the goodness that was given to them. Now, I know the idea of coming out of Chick-fil-A with a Walmart experience is ridiculous, and the likelihood of that happening is zero. But there is something that does happen with a great deal of regularity. And while we could be tempted to call it ridiculous, I think more often what we call it is heartbreaking. And that is this. This is the experience. That someone would experience God's love. And then after having experienced God's love, after having God's love offered to them freely through the abundant and lavish grace, mercy, and kindness of our Lord, that after that experience, they would feel shame. They would be trapped by personal guilt. They would feel the need to prove themselves. That they would beat themselves up over and over and over again for not being good enough. That they would leave a, a fresh experience even of this perfect love of God and find themselves trapped with fear. What would you say to such a person? 
who would experience the love of God, who would hear over and over again, God loves you. And yet, be burdened with self-condemnation and self-loathing. What would you, what would you ponder was, was going on with that person? Well, you might feel like out of fear, they refuse to believe that God would actually love them. Or they would feel that they weren't worthy of such a great love from such a great God. Or they would be so distracted by something else going on in their life that they would miss the goodness of what was happening and what was being offered and freely given to them. It's out of fear that we think that God's promises and grace can't possibly be that good, that we haven't done enough to earn it, But I do want to offer up to you that, that God's love and the experience of it is completely life-changing. And so this morning, as we kick off the 2024 preaching, I want to, I want to seek to answer two questions. What, the first one is, what do we mean when we say God's love? Those two words, God's love, what does that mean? And then secondly, and this will be a little more brief towards the end, what does being loved by God mean for us? And what does that, that love of God given to us, what does it produce in us? So what is God's love and what does it produce in us? And to, to answer these questions, predominantly the first one, we're going to be in 1 John 4. 1 John is right before 2 John, if you're looking it up in your Bible. I'm full of a lot of helpful tidbits, information. Occasionally I give them. We're going to be looking at specifically verses 9 and 10. John has just gone on to say that we should love one another. Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then he gives us some really strong indicators of what it means that God loves us. And, and not, he just says, this is what it is. This is how we know the love of God. This is the experience of God's love. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Here's what I believe this is telling us. 
to experience God's love is to have your life and eternity forever changed. Because God's love generously gives what is most precious. In this, verse 9, the love of God was made manifest. He sent his only son into the world. There is so much that is unfortunately missed, overlooked, or taken for granted when we say or hear the simple phrase, God loves you. It becomes almost just like a, just something we, we, like after someone sneezes, God bless you. We say, well, God loves you. But I, I thank the Lord that he had John the Apostle write this letter to this church. And within this letter, to put these couple of sentences, to make sure that we could slow down and not miss the tree within the forest. When we say, God loves you, that is, that is no small thing. And so what John does here in these two verses is he, he basically just tells us about our salvation, and he does it from the perspective of God the Father. He doesn't say Jesus came, which is true. He says God sent him. He sent his only son. This is how God's love was made most clear. He sent his only son. God spared nothing in making it possible for us to become his children. He spared not a single thing. He gave that which is ultimate, which is most precious to him. Last week, Pastor Will served us well, walking through the latter portion of Romans 8. In that portion, Paul says that God, sparing not even his own son, has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. God sparing not even his own son. He sent his only son. The Lord gave us the greatest of all gifts. British pastor and commentator David Jackman says this. It was amazing that God should send a son. But to send his only son is a measure of the enormity of his love. God had only one son. And he was sent into a hostile environment, into a rebel world, on a rescue mission to redeem us and reconcile us to God. This is love. So what does this tell you about God's affection for you? And I hope the personal nature of this is setting in. God's affection for you. If you are paying attention, it ought to tell you that God's love for you is real. It's demonstrated. It knows no limits. And that you are more loved by the God of heaven than you realize. God loves you. It's a simple sentence. But it's so profound. 
You know, and I've working at camps as long as I did, going to as many youth conferences as I did as a youth pastor, and, and through like my 18 years of being a high school, just kidding. Um, I heard so many speakers put it in terms of God is crazy about you, almost sounding like God is crushing on these kids. And it's not that. It's not a, a gushy kind of love. It's substantially more. It is grace-filled. It is life-giving. It is, it's not something that could be just written into a greeting card or, or put on a, a Hallmark movie. It's so much more valuable. If you're here as a Christian, this is the love you have experienced and continue to experience as you follow the Lord. And if you're here as someone who has not put their faith in Christ, as someone who's checking out Christianity, as someone who's, who's maybe you hit a wall and you're like, something in my life needs to change, maybe I'll just go to church today and see what's up with that. If you're here and you've, you, you've never said, Jesus is Lord of my life and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, then I want you to know that this love is available for you to experience even right now. You can, in this moment, you can pray, ask God that through his Son, he would forgive you of your sins and give you a new life, and that he would be Lord of that life. And that salvation-giving, eternity-altering love of God is available to you. He generously gives what is most precious, and this love of God that generously gives what is most precious moves with life-giving purpose. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The love of God, God himself, doesn't do what many of us will be doing in a little over a month, which is this. Going to whatever retailer sells greeting cards and hoping that someone sitting in an office somewhere with the perfect words on a folded piece of paper for you to convince someone that they might as well have come from you. Combine that with a couple flowers and a box of chocolate around some sort of fruity substance, which doesn't taste good, but we buy it because it's in a heart-shaped box. We'll convince them of your undying affection. That's not the love of God. The lo God is not wandering the greeting card aisle looking for how to tell you he loves you. No, he sent his only son so that you might have life through him because apart from him, we have death. Our sin creates for us death. It gives us the paycheck of death. 
And God sent his only son, as Jackman said, into a hostile environment, a rebel world, on a rescue mission to redeem us. And every step and action of this love of God is full of life-giving purpose. Giving us what we are unable to give ourselves. The love of God has this directed purpose. He knows We are not capable of getting ourselves out of this. So he gives us life through Christ. We're capable of giving ourselves all kinds of things, but life is not one of them. God knows we are dead in our sins. That we naturally and desirously and consciously walk in ways that are contrary to his perfect purity and holiness. We are on our own objects of wrath, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind is what Ephesians tells us. But God loves us so much, he sent his son to die for us. And instead of leaving us, who are children of wrath, dead in our sins, leaving us to our own destruction, starting over with something or someone else. He moves with the purpose of life for us, for our good. God loves you, and he loves you, and his love is going to move us to life, move us in directions that are for our good. And here's what this means. That you can, with absolute certainty, follow God knowing that walking with God And walking in God's love is not for your constraint, but for your freedom. How many times have we said, I know I've done it, said something that sounds like this. Oh, I kind of want to follow God, but I'm worried if I give that part of my life, I'll have to give up something I don't want to give up. I would love to put this relationship before the Lord, but that means I might not get to do the things I really want to do until I get married. I would really love to put my free time before the Lord and under his reign, but that might mean I don't get to get drunker than than all else or, or, or super high this weekend. And we feel that following the Lord is going to put shackles on us and constrain us from doing what we feel we have the right to do and certainly what we have the desire to do. If I follow the Lord, I might not get to look out for myself and make sure I get what I deserve. You can trust with absolute certainty absolute certainty that what God wants for you is not constraint, but greater good, greater joy, and greater freedom. When the Lord wants us to walk in humility, it's not to humiliate us, but to free us from having to impress others. To rest in his approval and grace instead of suffering through the anxiety of one-upmanship. When the Lord calls us to forgive It's not to become some sort of doormat that people can walk all over, but to actively place our hurt under his sovereignty and to remove the burden of wrong done to us from us 
to the one who is ultimately just. When he asks us to give up drunkenness and inebriation, it's not to inhibit our fun or or to limit our ability to escape, but to help us walk in wholeness, to find peace and a kind of peace that a bottle, a pill, a syringe could never give us. Something a pipe is unable to provide. To walk in wholeness and relationships that leads to an intimacy without shame. God lovingly sent His Son to give us life. So why should we continue to walk in the ways of death. At this point, you may be asking what I think is very natural to ask. Okay, that's what he did, but why in the world would he love us? Well, the love, God's love generously gives what is most precious, moves with life-giving purpose, and this is important It's initiated in heaven. John, like other epistle writers, tends to pack wonderfully deep truths into just a few words. And it's worth our time and consideration to read slowly. This is the time of year when we tend to be most ambitious with our Bible reading plans. I can knock out three, four chapters a day, and we do it. And it's great, and you should keep doing it. But you should also make sure that on occasion and with regularity, you find parts of the Bible that you just sit and read slowly. And this is one of them. In this, verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. John a little later is going to say, we love because he first loved us. And it is significant that God loved us first. God's love for you originates in heaven. And it has infinitely more to do with who God is than who you are. God's love for you has infinitely more to do with who God is than who you are. It simply doesn't depend on you. This is an out-of-this-world love, and I know what you're thinking, but I'm a lovable person, and you are. You're great. (laughs) I find you to be completely splendid. But we must read resist the urge to pridefully defend ourselves as though there's something so redeemable in us that anything less than the full grace of God is what saved us. God loved you without a whiff of goodness in you. Before you had done anything or could do a single thing for him, he loved you. God loved you when there was a black hole in the part of your life that would normally be filled with potential. 
I think maybe the closest we can get to this is a, a parent with a brand new baby. Where the parent is just gushing over this baby. Does this baby mow the lawn? No. Do they put away the dishes? No. They don't do anything. But the parent loves them. And everything is cute. The burps are cute. The spit up is cute. Even the poop is cute. Every, every parent in here has a funny story about poop with their baby, and you know it. And you tell that story with fondness, so don't argue with me about that point. <laughs> but even that love of a parent for their new baby falls short of what God has given. Because even that baby is doing something for their parent. That baby may be fulfilling a dream, may be answering a prayer that you've been longing for this child. God gave you this child, whether, whether through natural means or through adoption, that God gave you this child, and there's a love for this child. And maybe the timing wasn't what you wanted, but there's something in there that this child, even before this child can do anything, this child is doing something for you. And here's the deal. When God loved you, there was not a single thing you could do for him. Let that sink in. When God loved you, when God looked on you and said, I need to send my only son to die on the cross for their sins. When God said that about you, there was not a single thing you had done or could do for him at that moment. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This means God loved you when you had no ability to even earn merit. David Jackman, who I quoted earlier, says, let us acknowledge once and for all that if it were not for the fact that God is love, we would have no expectation of mercy or forgiveness. No hope and no future. The initiative in the work of man's salvation belongs entirely to the God of love. The world will tell you over and over and over again, you fit my system and I'll love you. You fit my needs, and I'll love you. You're attractive enough in my eyes, then I'll love you. You prove that you're good enough for my affection, and I will bestow it upon you, and you should be greatly glad in that. But not God. God says, I am God. I created everything. I created everything for a purpose, for my perfect purpose. I am holy, and you have rebelled against my perfect purpose. You are hostile towards me. You're dead to sin, and I love you. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because God's love is not only initiated in heaven, but it sacrificially solves our problem. We talked about kids when they're young. Let's talk about them while they're a little bit older. Every parent has had this scene. You come to whatever the playroom is, whether it's the bedroom, the basement, whatever, there's a gigantic mess. And you know, as the adult, that you haven't touched a single thing in that room. 
that the fingerprints of children are all over everything. And so you say, with discernment and justice, clean this mess up. At which point, you realize that you've said the worst words on earth. And you know you've said the worst words on earth because your child has lost all ability to move. They've collapsed. All the bones have disappeared from their body. They're lying on the floor in a puddle of whining. I can't! Because the child has realized just what a great devastation it is that they have inflicted upon your house that you are paying mortgage payments for. And they realize the path of destruction and the fruit of their carelessness as every toy in your house is laid out on the floor. And they say, I am incapable of cleaning up such devastation. And you, as the discerning parent, you say, you made the mess, you can clean up the mess. You were capable of lifting every single toy out of its neat place in a box and setting it somewhere in this room. You are also capable of picking up that toy and putting it back in the box. And had you not spent so much time whining, you would be done by now. <laughs> We've all seen this. God would have been completely just, and I would even argue completely good, in looking at us in our mess of sin and saying, you made this mess, you can live with this mess. You made this mess. You looked at my goodness and said by your actions, I would rather, oh God, have your wrath than your pleasure. Because when we sin, that's what our actions are communicating. And God would be good and just to look at us and say, you wanted my wrath, you can have it. He would have been holy in doing so. And this is the love of God. That he looks at our mess. He looks at all of our sin. And instead of saying, you're going to get what you deserve, he sends his son. And the way we live through his son is he sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Now, I know all of you know exactly what propitiation means, but I'm going to say it anyways. Here's what it means. It means that God didn't take our sin and say, well, let's just pretend that didn't happen. That would be passivity. That would be deception. Instead, what God said is, you've sinned an awful lot by nature and by choice. You've rebelled against me. You're deserving of my wrath, and my wrath must be satisfied. And he sent his son so that his wrath could be satisfied than in the sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross. That God poured that wrath on him. And Jesus satisfied all of the consequences of our sin. 
And God, on the third day, raised him from the grave. Robbing the death, robbing death in the grave of sting and victory, approving of the sacrifice of Jesus, so that through faith in Christ, God would look at you through Jesus. And that filter of Jesus removes all the impurities of you so that what's left is his own righteousness. God sacrificially solves our problem through his son, Jesus Christ. This is the love of God. That he doesn't just look at us and go, your mess, you clean it up. But he looks at us and says, your mess, I need to clean it up and I will do it perfectly through Christ. This is the love of God. So what does it mean? What does it produce in us? It produces peace and security and confidence because we all who call on the name of Christ are loved by the God of heaven. You don't need to impress God. You, you can't. You don't need to outperform someone out of fear that they're going to cut in line on the way to heaven and get in and you'll be left out you don't need to try and add to what Christ has done. He's done it perfectly. You can experience and enjoy the love of God. And what happens when we experience and enjoy the love of God? Well, this is what we're going to go into the next four weeks. One, there's transformation. Become a new creation. God starts a good work in you and he carries it out to completion. There is gospel transformation. Two, there's a, a rich knowledge. Because once you experience this love of God, you keep digging in and digging in and digging in. And there's an experiential knowledge of the love of God that is greater than anything else this world would have to offer. Third, there's a vibrant worship as we respond to the love of God in gratitude. Not just our vibrant singing, although you guys are exceptional at that, but our whole life. And finally, there's an eagerness to share this love of God with others. God loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, holy, infinitely powerful and wise, would love us. Before we could do anything to show that loving us is a good idea, that you would love us, that that's who you are. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray 
that you would remind us of that. Help our ears and our hearts and our minds to be aware of the reminders of your love for us. And Lord, especially, the, not just the reminder, but the, the undeniable sign of your love that Christ came. You sent your son to die on the cross so that we can have life through him. To become our penalty so that we can become the righteousness of God. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.